G'day everyone, good to be with you. My name's Paul Owens, or Oe. I'm the pastor of the church at 10.30, but here on staff with Sue Ellen and Steve and a bunch of other people. Uh, and if you've got Romans 7 open in front of you, that's going to help. We're going to be looking at that, but also looking at a bit of Romans 6 and 8. So we are going to take uh, quite a bit of time actually in the Bible tonight, so having it in front of you will be helpful. Just want to ask you an opening question, <clears throat> which is, as we read... As we heard the Bible read tonight, what was your reaction? Did you feel depressed or relieved uh, as you heard Paul describe what it's like to struggle to put off sin and yet to fail and to fail consistently? Uh, There's any number of different responses that you might have had, but perhaps you felt depressed or relieved. Uh, And if that was your struggle... I want you just to keep that in mind as we go through it and we'll uh, deal with that as we as we get through this passage. I should have said right at the start, we will have a bit of an opportunity for question time tonight. So if you've got questions, feel free to scribble something down. We'll spend a little bit of time at the end of this dealing with those things. Uh, we're going to try and take a bit of a picture of Romans 7 and Romans 6 and 8. And so uh, when you think about photography, you can kind of do the get your zoom lens on and get in as close as you can to take a picture in detail of what's in front of you, or you can take a wide-angle lens and try and get a big picture and a broad view of what it is that you're looking with, what it is you're dealing with. Uh, And as we look at this, we're going to try and do both. So we're first going to spend a bit of time looking at the detail of Chapter 7, and then we're going to step back and try and capture Chapter 6 and Chapter 8 as well. So let's start in Chapter 7 with the zoom lens on. And as we look at this, this is why you might be depressed or relieved in regard to this. When I say that, let me I should explain that as well. You might either be depressed and you think that uh, Paul describes something that is your experience and you know what it is to, to know uh, what you should be doing and yet to fail and to fall into sin. Or you may feel relieved in the sense that it's great that someone else has the same struggle you have. Uh, they might be the two responses that you'd head for. So here we are, chapter 7. Paul describes himself in this passage as a slave to sin. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Have a look with me down to verse 23. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And then verse 25, a little further down. Halfway through that verse, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Just that language is a little bit depressing, isn't it? He is trapped in slavery to sin. Even though he knows the law is good and he tries to obey, he cannot do obedience. Because each time that he tries to do good, he fails. Have a look with me, verse 18. For I know the good itself, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. It is a depressing scene of a continual attempt to do what is right, to do obedience before God, and yet a continual failure to be able to do that. Why does he keep on failing? Well, he describes another law that's at work in him. There is another powerful law at work inside Paul. Have a look at verse 21. 
So I find this law at work. Here's the different law. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. See, there's this the force of sin, the force of his own sinful nature is at work in him so that even though he desires to do what is right and good in obedience to the law, he continually fails to do that. And the end result of that, it's in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It would be an understandable response to feel down and saddened by this description that Paul is giving us. But this is our reality. We're dead in our sins. God's law is good and right and proper. That comes through throughout this whole chapter. But we are sinful and subject to death because of sin. That's Paul's description throughout this. The end result of chapter 7 is that we are under the judgment of God and we are headed towards death. Uh, I'm not much of a dream analyzer, but I'm going to try it right now. I think most of us have this dream. You have a dream where you're being chased by someone or attacked by someone. There's some threat to to you and you know that you need to seek outside assistance from whatever that threat is, from whatever that difficulty is. And so you know that you want to scream. You want to yell out to gather that attention to to make sure that you can uh, look after yourself. And yet when you go to scream, absolutely nothing comes out. You can't make a noise. Have you had that sort of a dream? It's a very common experience, apparently. You know what you need to do, but you just can't do it. And that's what Paul describes in chapter 7. Sin rules over us. So we know what we need to do, but we just can't do it. And as a result of that, Romans 7 is so clear, we are in grave danger. We are in serious trouble because of our sin. You may have seen this photo recently. It's uh, the winner of this year's Nature Photograph of the Year. It's a a Tibetan fox. You probably guessed that, the fox part of things. I didn't really know what the other animal was. It's a marmot. Funny-looking thing, isn't it? It's in the wrong place at the wrong time. The fox is about to eat the marmot. We're watching an animal know that it is very near death. Friends, the reality is Romans 7 tells us that's us. That we are not the people we would want to be, let alone the people God demands that we are, and the reality is we are dead in our sins. We have a physical death that will come, but alongside of that there is an eternal and spiritual death that is coming for all of us. Not because of God's law, which is good, but because of our sin. Because our sinful nature will be judged by a good and holy God. And friends, it is absolutely good to know this. It's good to know that we need rescue. Now when we come to Romans 7, it's worth recognising that we kind of come with our own questions of the Bible. And often we read something like this and we think to ourselves, that feels like that's my experience. And so we might ask that question, is that exactly what Paul's talking about? Is he talking about a Christian experience or perhaps 
given the context, is he talking about something that's pre-Christian, before you become a Christian? Or exactly what is it that he's talking about? But actually, when you, when you look closely at this, Paul is not, not answering the question, is this a Christian experience or is this a non-Christian experience or any other sort of experience that he's describing? He's answering his own question. His own question is, is the law death to us? So he's not asking those other questions. When I was a little kid, my mum used to... Um, she had a little scrapbook where she wrote down all sorts of things about you know, development, when, when it was that we walked, all sorts of stuff, first words. She wrote, uh, in my little scrapbook, I had two older brothers who I'm sure um, uh, dominated conversation around the dinner table. And she wrote on my little scrapbook, around about three or four years old, I had a common saying that I would use regularly. And that common saying was, you talk about that, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> because presumably I wanted to butt in to start talking in the conversation so I'd say it's time for you to stop you talk about that I'm gonna, I want to talk about this I want to talk about something else and I think that's what Paul is doing here we think he's talking about describing a Christian experience or perhaps a prior to becoming a Christian experience but actually he tells us exactly what he's talking to he tells us exactly the context of what he's describing have a look with me at verse 13 He says, did that which is good then become death to me? And the that which is good is the law. God's law is good. So he's saying, did God's law become death to me? And his answer is an emphatic, absolutely not. No, no, the problem is not in God's law. The problem is in me and in you. Sin brought death to us. Sin it is that convicts us and condemns us before God. And we are far worse off than we ever thought. And so that's our our, uh, up-close view, if you like, the zoom in regard to Romans 7. And now we want to just get a bit of a wider angle view, the broader context, in order to set the scene. So we're going to have a look at verse, sorry, chapter 6 and chapter 8 to try and make better sense of what's going on inside chapter 7. Let me read for you verse 16 to 18. Paul talks a bit about slavery in chapter 7 and we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's have a look at what he talks about slavery in chapter 6 and in chapter 8. Chapter 6, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin... You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that's now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You see what he's saying? The experience of the Roman church, they've come to hear the gospel, they've turned to Jesus in trust, and now they are no longer slaves to sin, but they've become slaves to righteousness. So they've moved out of slavery to sin to become slaves to God and to obedience to him. Now that's the context for chapter 7. Let's flick forward to chapter 8. We'll pick up verse 2. And again, Paul's talking about the same stuff. Chapter 8, verse 2 says, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. See what Paul's saying? The Romans have heard the gospel responded in putting their trust in Jesus 
And as a result, they are no longer slaves to law and sin and death. Now let's go back to chapter 7 and see what Paul says in regard to slavery in chapter 7. Verse 14. What does he say about slavery? We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Down to verse 23. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. And down to verse 25. Thanks be to God who, uh, sorry, so halfway through, verse 25. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. See, Paul's clearly not describing the experience of the Roman church, of the Christian church in Rome. He's describing what it is to be a slave to sin. Why? Because he's describing what it is like to try to be made right with God through obedience to the law. To try and do good in order to be brought into relationship with God. And Paul's telling us, if you try that, no matter how hard you try, you will fail continually and you will be a slave to sin and death as a result of it. So it's helpful for us to grab a context that helps us to understand the meaning of the text. And so we come to, the, come to this part of the Bible with all of our questions, but we ought to know the question that the author is answering in order that we can make best sense of it. And the question he's asking is all around the law. Is the law death to us? Is the law a bad thing that we ought to avoid? And his answer is, no, no, no. God's law is good. The problem is us. The problem is our hearts are set against God. We're rebels before a holy and perfect God who deserves to have our obedience. See, what Paul describes here is the effect of God's law on someone who works incredibly hard to keep that law and yet fails at every point. And the other context that it's worth remembering is that Paul writes, no doubt understanding that some Jewish people will be reading this and understanding it. And those Jewish people loved the law of God. They were proud that they were the people who had received God's law, those first five books of the Bible we looked at last week, being the law of God. They'd received that and they took great pride in it. And they heard this message of the gospel that all humanity, both Gentile and Jew, every human person, had the problem of sin and would not be right before God. But God had generously sent Jesus to suffer and die in order that anyone, Jew or Gentile, who turned to, turned to Jesus in trust would be made, made right with God. Having heard that gospel message, they then were, were clearly going to be thinking about the question of, well, what good is the law? We took great pride in having the law, yet what good is it? And so Paul responds throughout chapter 7 to describe the role of the law. Even if you try to keep it and you love it and you see that it's good, your sinful nature is going to drive you to break it. It'll drive you to failure. In fact, the problem, when you get down to specifics, Paul says, is our flesh. It's in us. The problem is us, ourselves, and inside of us. Now, let me, let me just take you back to a few verses. We've got the great privilege of having heaps of different translations in English. We are um, incredibly privileged to have God's word, not just in one version, but in multiple different versions. Uh, we're, I'm preaching from the NIV, the New International Version. It's a great translation. 
And they've tried in this chapter to try and give us not just uh, the words but the actual meaning of the author. It's a great intent, something that Bruce and Kathy are going to be trying to do as they encourage people to translate well. So that the author themselves might be able to sit in the room, if they were to sit in the room, they'd say, that's exactly what I meant, so that we would know the very word of God for us. So they've done a great job with this. But what I want to do is just show you the literal translation, which I think will give us a better handle on what's going on here. And literally, Paul writes the word flesh repeatedly in these verses. So I'll just show you where they are and then we'll pick up where flesh is in chapter 8 and try and make sense of it. Let's go back to verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshy or unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So the problem is that he's fleshy. Verse 18, further down, I know know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh, in my sinful nature. And verse 25, So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh, in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. See, the problem Paul goes into time and time again is the problem of his sinful nature or his flesh. Now he picks up that same word and uses it again in the next chapter. So let's have a look there. Verse 4 of chapter 8. He says, excuse me, verse 4, chapter 8, where those, we are those who do not live according to the flesh, towards the end of that verse. We do not live according to the flesh. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You have, Sorry, let me summarise. By that time, it's feeling hopeless, isn't it? If you're in the flesh, you have no hope. Verse 9, chapter 8. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. So that helps us to make sense of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is not talking about what you and I ought to expect in our Christian lives day to day. It doesn't have us and our day to day experience of Christianity in mind. It is speaking directly to someone, anyone, who would seek to be made right with God through their own obedience to God's law. And it says to those people, Anything that you are doing will will simply bring about the judgment of God because you won't do obedience all the time to all of God's law. You see, sin, our flesh, is a powerful force that brings about death. Even though God's law is good, we won't be able to keep it. And the result is the reign or the rule of flesh. Have a look with me again at chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's the end result. If we are just to be in our sinful nature and try to be made right with God through what we do, we are always going to fall short. Now, just have a quick look up on the screen with me. Paul says something very, very similar way back in Romans 3 that he's expanding on here. Romans 3, verse 20 and 21 Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, 
Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. See, God's law is not a pathway that we can do obedience in order to be brought into relationship with God. Actually, what happens as we hear and understand the law of God, we recognise our own sin. We're conscious of our sin. Friends, that is unbelievably bad news because it tells us that we're under God's condemnation and under his judgment of death. That's the bad news. The good news is here too, isn't it? Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. See, there's a wonderful gift of forgiveness that comes in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to people who could never save themselves. Last week we looked at the idea of an x-ray as something that is simply a diagnostic tool. It doesn't actually treat any illness or condition that we've got. And the law is like that. It's a diagnostic tool. But this week we recognise that it's something far more significant than that. It's a little bit like we've turned up to our GP with a bad cough, feeling a bit low on energy, thinking that we've got a chest infection and hoping that we get a round of antibiotics to clear all of that up. And yet when we've turned up to the GP, we realise that we've got terminal lung cancer. See, that's the role of the law. It tells us that we're dead. We are dead in our sins with no hope of being made right with God through what we do. Now let me just take you to what Jesus says about the law in Matthew 5. He gives a summary of the law, if you like, and a retelling, a recasting of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 38 to 41, he says these things. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I I do all those things. Well, let me say that would be unusual. But if that is you, and you are thinking that you always do all of those things all of the time, then this week, ask a friend or a close family member to slap you on the cheek and see how you respond. See, we simply don't do these things. And if that hasn't convinced you, let me give you... Another few words from Jesus. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, none of us in this room are going to say, that's me. I'm always perfect. And yet that is the demands of the law of God on us. It doesn't take too much thinking to recognise that we cannot do this, that we are in trouble before God. But praise God, he has done it in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Now let me just stop for a quick word of caution. It's helpful to know what Romans 6 to 8 is not saying so that we don't fall into error in this. So there is a thrust, an argument that comes through these three chapters. It's not saying that the Christian person can live without sin. Romans 7 is not saying that. Romans 6 and 8 is not saying that we expect there will be no sin in the life of the Christian. No, Paul fully understands there will be the presence of sin. That's why he keeps giving instructions to put off sin. But what is being explained here is that the tyrannical power, the reign and the rule of sin will be broken in the life of the Christian so that sin no longer reigns in the way it's described in chapter 7. 
It doesn't rule over you so that no matter what you do, you will continue to fail and continue to sin. No, no, that has been broken by the gospel so that now you are enabled to live in obedience. That's coming in chapter 8. What Romans 7 does tell us is that we need a saviour. So were you depressed or relieved when you heard Romans 7? Were you depressed because you saw that someone else had a continuing failure to put off sin and you thought that might be your path? Or were you relieved that someone else had a struggle with sin and failed? So it perhaps freed you up to fail and continue to fail in regard to sin. Friends, neither of those places are where we should end in response to Romans 7. We should end where Paul tells us he ends. He shows us exactly where we should end. Have a look at verse 24 and 25. This is where we're supposed to be at the end of this. Chapter 7, verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? See, we are supposed to understand that the law of God is not a pathway to being made right with God. It is showing us just how broken we are and just how much we need a rescuer. We need a saviour. Friends, that is a great gift from God to us. To tell us that we are in grave danger. To tell us that we are wretched people who need rescue. But he doesn't end there. Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, Romans 7 tells us so clearly how, how there is only one way to be made right with God. That's through putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. He's our only hope. We cannot work our way to be okay with God through our own obedience to his law. We will always fail. So now, having been delivered, if you are here tonight and you put your trust in Jesus, having been delivered from the judgment of God, we have life and life to the full with the Spirit of God living in us. But that's next week in Romans 8. Let's pray and then we'll have a bit of an opportunity for question time. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the message of the Gospel. We want to thank you for this very big book Uh, that shows your grace and your mercy to us. But we want to thank you that it shows us our lostness, our sinfulness and our brokenness in ways that we may never, ever have recognised without it being clearly shown to us. Help us to know our need for rescue. Help us to turn to Jesus, not just tonight, but for every week, every month, every year that you give us. Help us to be people who come back to the cross for forgiveness day by day. Amen.